Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi everybody and welcome to the Speak Up podcast. Today we're here to discuss the role of speech pathology in the palliative care setting. But before we launch into that, let's just have a little discussion of who's here today doing the podcast. Um, Lisa and I can go first. So I'm Sam. Um, I've been a speech pathologist for 22 years, currently working at Monash Health in acute neurosciences as the senior lead there, as well as general medicine and in our palliative care units, both on the wards and in our um, McCulloch House. I've worked in both acute and community settings across the uh, spectrum of the aged care and currently have a background in disability nursing. Over to you, Lise. Thank you. I'm Lisa Terry and I'm also a senior speech pathologist, been practising for over 16 years. Um, I work across critical care, gen general medicine and palliative care, including McCulloch House at Monash Health and I'm also the cross-site lead for the Altered Airway team here. So palliative care is very much an area of passion for both Sammy and I. Um, so thank you to all the listeners who have joined in today. We can't speak for everyone, but Sammy and I certainly feel that palliative care can be one of those clinical areas where complexities, the patient complexities and family advocacy skills can be underestimated. And that decision-making for patient care is often multifactorial. We're very fortunate today to have both Dr. Laura Charter and Professor Lindsay Carey here today to discuss their award-winning paper, Speech Language Pathologists and Adult Palliative Care in Australia. I'll just introduce uh, Laura first. So Dr. Laura Charter is a speech pathologist and academic who has extensive experience working with adult palliative populations in a variety of settings from acute inpatient, community rehabilitation, home services to aged care. Her academic ex experiences extends over 10 years with combined lecturing and research in death studies with particular emphasis on death anxiety, which later developed a more clinically focused speech pathology practice in palliative care settings. Laura currently works clinically in the community rehabilitation and lectures into several Master of Speech Pathology subjects on topics such as dysphagia, clinical practice and palliative care at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for having me. And we also are lucky to have Dr. Lindsay Carey, who is an Associate Professor with the Palliative Care Unit, School of Psychology and Public Health at La Trobe University, where he first commenced as a lecturer in 1991. He is also an Associate Professor with the Institute of Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame. And Associate Professor Carey is the co-founder and secretary of the Speech Language Pathology Palliative Care Special Interest Group. Associate Professor Carey, along with his co-authors, Dr. Laura Charter and Professor Benice Matheson from the University of Southern Queensland and Professor Travis Threat, University of St. Louis in USA, were co-awarded the best research publication for 2021 
by the International Journal of Speech-Language Pathology and Taylor and Francis Publishers for Research into Speech-Language Pathologists and Palliative Care. Wow, well, we're in great company here, aren't we, Sammy? Absolutely. <laughs> Massive congratulations to you both for winning the 2021 Editor's Prize for the International Journal of Speech-Language Pathology. This is such a big deal and fabulous to be putting palliative care and the speech role on the radar. So welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us today. Yeah, great. Thank you for having us. Now let's explore the paper. <laughs> we'll start with our first question um, regarding the paper. Why do you think there is minimal research or published literature around the role of speech pathologists in palliative care? Um, I, I think there's there's probably two main reasons why there has been minimal research um, in the past. The first being that, um, you know, palliative care in itself is still a relatively emerging area of practice. Um, and, and when I'm saying it's still still emerging, we're still talking about 30 plus years of it being present and and functional within our healthcare settings, but it's it's really um, developed and it's really evolved over those years. And I think with that evolvement, we've seen the emergence of the need for speech pathologists to be part of that palliative care team, where previously speech paths really weren't considered as part of that integral member of, of the pal care team. Um, Saying that, it was also still largely institutionalised within hospital settings. So with that evolvement of it becoming more home-based, community-based, um, you know, inpatient, outpatient, more long-term palliative care services, um, it's it's definitely taken a different shape. So I'm saying, I guess, over the past few years, speech paths are starting to see there's a real need for us to be there. And we really need to start churning out some some evidence-based practice to help us, support us in, in those roles. Yeah, I'd agree with Laura entirely. Um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that uh, as I um, have visited aged care facilities and have tried to get the assistance of, of the speech pathologist, that quite often I was uh, um, greeted with the response, speech pathologist, what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we. There, no, no, that's they were operate down in the acute area. We we don't have nothing to do with speech pathologists. So there's there, as Laura's just indicated, there was this incongruence about understanding uh, what the role of speech pathologists actually were, and I think that's part of the reason. It's just a misunderstanding of of both their potential um, utility, um, but also in terms of uh, holistic care. That speech pathologists add that extra d dimension and dynamic uh, to holistic care, which you know we'll probably come back to a little bit later. Absolutely. Lindsay, do you think that's primarily because sometimes when we get to this palliative stage of um, someone's life in terms of uh, they're now seen as, as this is the path they're going down, they are going to die, therefore let them eat and drink what they want to eat and drink, let them, they'll tell you if they want anything or people don't know the questions around that to ask you know, how can we facilitate this person's communication better or how can we optimise their diet and fluids? Or what do you think that um, barrier to speech pathology in the care has been? Yes, well, actually, I think in, in your question, I think you've almost answered it um, because that <laughs> has been the focus is upon, uh, you know, food, um, nutrition, food, swallowing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the actual uh, uh, various ways you can communicate have sort of been left to the side as not such a high priority. And that focus has meant... 
um, there has been, uh, I suppose, a deterioration in, in our relationship with the patient because it becomes so biologically focused, if I can mm-hmm. put it all into that category, that we've Absolutely. missed the other dynamics. We've missed the social. We've, uh, we, you know, we've missed the, um, the uh, spiritual. We've missed the psychological and so forth. So, yes, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're very lucky here at Monash Health and to work in McCulloch House, we, we get referrals for both dysphagia and communication. The profile's probably quite similar, would you say, Sammy, that balance is, I'd say it's probably 60-40, probably on the swallow side. But yeah, it's we're very lucky to have good relationships with our palliative care teams here. Yeah, I think I think over the years it's really developed um, and I know that in community as well and, and when I work in the nursing homes now, we've got that real... Um, try and optimise end-of-life care. How can we make this as optimal for this patient as we can and we bring in those respecting patient choices and what is it you would like to do and speech pathologists then being seen as an advocate to try and help that. But it's not across the board by all means. It's not across every nursing home sometimes where or, you know, or every palliative end-of-life care in the hospital. It's like, oh, they're goals of care D now. You can tap out versus... Mm we don't need to, we can actually facilitate some of these conversations and some of this uh, nutrition for you. We recognise there are currently no clinical practice guidelines for the role of speech pathology in palliative care. Who do you think should, I guess, develop those and how do you ensure they're flexible and not too prescriptive? Um, I think that this is a really hard question to answer because um, I, I guess that that is part of the complexity of what palliative care is, is that nothing can be prescriptive. Everything is individualised. Um, and if we want to maintain incredibly person-centred, we cannot just have a set of rules that one can just for, you know, work through as, as a sort of a formula. Yes. Um, but that being said, we do need guidance um, because I'd say it would be equally damaging not to have any guidance and to have a speech pathologist who may be doesn't really have much of a clue about, you know, end-of-life care um, to treat someone, um, you know, as, as best as they think that they know how, but they're, they're missing a whole bunch of, you know, holistic, um, you know, components to their care. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. that's a good point that Laura's just made about um, the flexibility because, um, you know, palliative care is meant to be individualised. There's no doubt about that. My... Um, concern which also Laura is hinting at is that there has to be a balance between the, the flexibility of being provi- providing um, individual care but also there's the accountability and responsibility of a profession to take on um, the duties that they need to do to provide that full um, uh, holistic care. Lindsay I wondered in terms of services I guess current services that don't have speeches on their palliative care team who who do you think is filling that gap? Who is facilitating communication swallowing if the speech is not there? <laughs> well, now that's... Like yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, part of me says nobody. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, not well. Um, and I know a lot, of, a lot of responsibility falls to nurses. But um, one of the roles that I had um, some time back in, in um, uh, several hospitals was as a pastoral carer. And, um, the, and and sometimes it's the chaplain who actually realises there's wow. a dynamic here that's not being... And so the chaplain alerts certain people um, because they come in that, that sort of a quiet time and they have a quiet time without all the flurry of other issues happening. And, and then the chaplain discovers. Now, that was one of the... That's how I actually discovered it because I was looking uh, in a pastoral care role. I was looking for the speech with us and trying to organise it. And as I said, by the time I was able to organise something, it was not too late. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, overall, I think it's, it, it, it's lacking. Maybe um, you can tell me how 
how it works at Monash. Um, but certainly, I mean, a lot of it falls to the nurses. Um, and then secondly, I would say someone like the chaplain or maybe a social worker who might, you know, pick it up on the cues. But again, as Laura's indicating, it, it needs to be within speech pathology guidelines yeah. and it needs to be in other professional guidelines as well. So it's not excluded. And I wonder whether it's a cultural thing too, uh, you know, depending on what network you work in um, and whether the the teams have sort of, it's been ingrained into them in their training, you know, an MDT focus with a speech ENOT, a, a physio um, Mm. Interesting, isn't it? I think the debate is, you know, some some people have tried to put to me the fact that, well, it, it's not it's not that um, we're just not including the speech pathologists. It's not that we're excluding them. I say absolute rubbish. If you <laughs> if it's not written down, if it's not detailed that there is a, a specific role for a speech pathologist to be involved and 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 noted in a multidisciplinary way or interdisciplinary way, then the speech pathologists are being excluded. So I'm sorry, you, this, that, that, that one debate really annoys me when, oh, you know, we, we would never, we would, you know, we'd always include these speech pathologists, la, da, da. Well, but you're not, you're actually excluding it because you haven't got it in your protocols. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a very valid point. And, and also then at what point is the speech pathologist rolling, rolling this uh, palliative patient's journey commence like the importance of us being there at the start of a journey where we can really hone in and make sure that if they have say a a progressive neuro disorder that their communication we can facilitate them we can teach them different alternate options for when things start to deteriorate rather than just at the end when we're trying to scramble for things so I think you know our involvement from the start would be really good too. I think that's a really good point as well. And I think even found in the research is that a lot of the times, you know, there'll, there'll be a lot of health services saying, but but we do refer to speech pathology services. Yes, you refer to them when it when it's too late as yes. well. So it's very rarely early enough that we can actually make a meaningful difference for the clients. The amount of times that I was referred within a hospital setting to say, oh, I need you to come see this palliative client um, urgent referral, this person has already transitioned to the active phase of dying. So they're in and out of consciousness. They're not going to be taking any oral intake. There's no communication there. And then, I, you know, my, my recommendations are very limited. And then it kind of perpetuates this thing of, oh, well, the speech pathologist didn't do that much. So mm. perhaps we won't refer her next time um, or them next time because I, I could have done that myself. But what they don't know is that had I been there much earlier, I could have helped to transition um, with that ease of eating and drinking. I could have had some meaningful conversations with the family about um, mm. you know, oral hygiene practices. Mm. I always love getting the family involved as well for any sort of... I feel like that's overlooked yeah. a lot. Yeah, our role no, with the and, family and, and education. Yeah, it's absolutely overlooked. So it, it's an unfortunate thing that I think we're starting to get better, absolutely. And I think in designated palliative care services, it's a very different story compared to um, you know, services that don't have or, or their, their palliative care component is very separate. So, yeah. um, you know, working in like acute neuro or something where they'll just say, oh, we'll, we'll just get palliative care in or the palliative care team will come in. So they're still very, I guess, um, singly focused in that they're, they're not really um, aware of what that palliative care team can do um, or w- what impacts we can make. And then there's the whole, you know, you mentioned palliative care to the family and they just, they freak out and go, oh, my, my, my dad's going to die or, and no, it's not just about that. It's about the service we're providing and it could be a year away from now, but it's it's linking them in with that system and that team. 
Gosh, yeah. and isn't that the truth as well? Because I think, and especially when I'm teaching my students as well, that's my first lesson to them. It's that <laughs> yeah. care does not mean that someone is imminently dying. Yes, it yes. It coincide with diagnosis. You know, someone who's been diagnosed with Huntington's disease may well have palliative care services very early on to help throughout the trajectory of, the, of their disease because they have a life-limiting illness. Um, you know, and, and, yeah, palliative care services can be, I've worked with people for several years. I've worked with people for a few months. I've worked with someone for a day. It's so different. Yeah. Nursing homes probably have, in my opinion, the largest variability in terms of what palliative care looks like. Some of them even label them, you know, according to lettering, you know, this one's on palliative trajectory A versus B versus C. <laughs> what, what does this all mean? Because you go into another nursing home and it all means something different as well. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and I think, you know, ha- having that acknowledgement of what palliative care is, what our role is, not to be afraid of comfort feeding or mm. risk feeding. I mean, you saying that actually just reminds me of, of an experience I had myself with a client um, where all they wanted was a cheeseburger and they weren't <laughs> um, deemed safe to be having that sort of texture. I think they were sitting around a puree or, or a mince moist diet and the the facility was just like, oh, we'll just, we can blend up the cheeseburger. I said, that's that's disgraceful. I don't, I don't know what sort of flavour that's going to be, but it's it's not going to be what they're wanting. And they said, we legally can't have them have this cheeseburger on site. And um, what we had found with the family was that if we had actually just crossed the road to get off their property and then give them the cheeseburger there, wow. they were happy with that. So it was this whole trek to get them in a wheelchair, get them out of the facility, sign a dignity of risk waiver, and come family across the road just so that we could offer them the cheeseburger that they wanted. So there's so much red tape there and it's so not conducive to what it means to be personal or palliative, um, you know, palliative care. But um, I've had many of those experiences um, myself working in, aged care so it's it's definitely a place that needs to be shaken up in terms of um you know comfort feeding for example Laura did they enjoy the cheeseburger they loved the cheeseburger <laughs> <Of course they're laughs> I mean you know we we put in some you know safe swallow strategies as best as we can we yep, acknowledge that there would have been some risk there um I was there the family members were there there was one um um, nursing staff who did volunteer to come across as well just in case there was something you know that that might have occurred and and it was a lovely experience and and the um the resident themselves said this is actually better than having it within the center anyway because you know <laughs> yeah. we're, we're across the road into like a little park and reserve oh, so it was really lovely for them yeah. yeah yeah it's it's that risk that weighing up the striking the balance between the risk management and, and quality of life and what the patient wants and needs yeah Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I talk about, um, you know, I lecture on palliative care at Melbourne Uni and there are so many students who are so keen to learn. Like they're just like, I really want to work in palliative care. And, you know, I guess I I, I speak very lovingly about palliative care because obviously this is an area of passion. <laughs> I think that we're a special kind of breed who wants to, who wants to work and live and yeah. breathe palliative care. It's certainly not for everyone. Sure. Um, and I think maybe you've you've come across that in your own clinical practice. Mm-hmm. There'd be some speech passages might tap out and just say, I can't with this. Um, there's a high level of burnout with this um, particular area of practice as well. So we need to take care of our golden clinicians who have 
decided to step up and work within this setting and we also need to share their their extensive knowledge um, with with the rest of the community I just wanted to add to Laura's point because Laura just reminded me of something and I think one of the issues there's there's a sense of reluctance I think on behalf of not just speech pathologists but other allied health professions as well about being involved in an area that ultimately um, you know is looking at uh, mortality and the, you know death and dying and so forth and um, Laura and I used to teach a subject called death, dying and grief. And it, it was amazingly popular. The students would start out <laughs> with, you know, wor- worried looks on their faces when they'd come into the first class. <laughs> what, what does this mean exactly? And Because in a sense they had to face their own mortality in doing oh. that subject. But by the end of it, um, the students really appreciated it. In fact, we got some of the highest rankings of, of any of the subjects. But even death and dying um, in the university system is quite often an elective for health science students. Yeah. And there's two subjects that surprise me in most universities that continue to be electives. One is death and dying, and yet we all know what our own consequences are eventually. Um, and the other one is bioethics. So the two things that seem to be fundamental for allied health clinicians to... <laughs> well, I think in the health service, we, you know, death is inevitable that you will come across it at some point. And you don't want that to actually, as a student, be your first experience of it. I know Lisa and I just had some um, yeah. some intermediate students with us um, who were absolutely fabulous. They were flawed when two of their patients passed away overnight. We had to really have those conversations mm. to talk them through what had happened and how they were feeling um, and they'd never really thought of it. And one of them said... I actually didn't think anyone was going to die in hospital. Oh. You think, yeah. ah, whereas, you know, if we start at university level and yeah. have those conversations because they're very difficult to have in the moment if you haven't thought about your own ideas about death and dying and your own um, emotions around that sometimes. Well, that's Even- why my, my students um, in the early stages, not, not so more recently, that I would encourage them to go along to a funeral um, you know, if they had the opportunity, because it's not just about death; it's also about celebration, and that is and and that is something that we can start doing a lot earlier. Like, for example, um, I'm getting older, and you know, life life is life is terminal, unfortunately, at some point. <laughs> um, and so, I've already I have already uh, made up a um, uh, a quilt that I in, intend to have. Um, assuming my family allow me to, you know, follow through, uh, a quilt ready to go for when I am in palliative care or whatever stage I happen at. And on the quilt I've got, you know, um, uh, my name, of course, on it, but also all the badges of all the, the, the cloths of all the places I've been to around the world in doing seminars and because it, that's part of that transition process. I've already done a draft for my funeral and I'm in the process. I've already organised the people who will present at my funeral and I've already asked them, uh, permission to do that um, and so preparing yourself is very very important and this is one of the things that chaplains actually do theological students is that they very early in their career they go along to this um, to uh, funeral directors they see all the stages that happens etc and they practice writing services uh, for specialist celebratory services for people's lives and so forth and they then become almost like a um, an intern to a clergy person to learn all the processes that people go through etc cetera, etc cetera. 
I think what you're referring to as well, like what, what we're circling about is just to have that increased death literacy um, yes. before, you know, starting to work clinically. So it can just be smaller, more controlled levels of exposure. It doesn't have to be, you know, from, you know, nothing to go and, and attend yes. funerals and, and everything like that. Like, like you know, some examples that Lindsay was saying, but I mean, he's, he's I suppose, suggested a whole range or a myriad of different things that one could do to start feeling a little bit more about, a little bit more comfortable about the uncomfortable, I suppose, which would be yeah. that death and dying. Um, and I think, Sam, what you were saying before um, previously about, you know, your students who hadn't expected um, to lose um, some patients, I think it's still really largely ingrained within our tertiary coursework that what we do is re rehabilitative. Yes. So we see yes. someone who is unwell and we make them better. And, and that, that's pretty much the, the bottom line mm. with everything. And then I, I know when I was a student um, what, way back when, when I said, but what if they don't get better? What if they don't get better? And I kind of seemed like that cynical person. Oh, no, no, then then you just do this. Then you just do that. Okay, what if that doesn't work? What if that doesn't work? What if that doesn't work? And I would mm. never get that clear answer. Um, so I guess it's, and, and it's also changing that mentality about losing a patient or an individual is not a failure or a reflection on the clinical knowledge or work yeah, you did with them. So true. Yeah. It's feeling, you know, confident that you've done everything that you've can to support them and you've helped them during this important transition of their life. So um, it's a bit of an attitude change that we need to work at too. I agree. I mean, touching back to those students we had, Sammy, they were, those two deaths were unexpected. And I know when we, you know, we do our morning board every morning, we prioritise our patients. If they're in ICU or they're palliative, the students don't see them. They're not involved whatsoever. So I think that's, that's we probably need to ask that question um, across the board. Is that the right thing to do? Um, they would never be left alone with the patient. But in terms of that exposure and yeah, it, it sort of ask that question, do we start there? It is, isn't it? I mean, because there's a certain level that as, as a clinical educator, and, and I know myself, you, you've got this sense of wanting to protect your students as well. You're trying Absolutely. To offer them yeah. a controlled clinical experience. You're trying to foster their clinical skills and you just think, oh, ICU, palliative care, probably too hard basket, if yeah. they're, you know, intermediate or novice or what have you. But I actually did start integrating my students into some palliative sessions where I'll just say, look, I'm, I'm running the show. Yes. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Yep. Um, but what I want you to do is listen to how I'm talking to the families. Mm. Um, pay close attention to what sort of language I'm using. Um, see how I'm actually utilising my role outside of that clinical room as well with the yeah. nursing staff, you know, with communication with the doctors, so on and so forth. So I think it's really important to start integrating them. And I think it's, you know, those those baby steps. And as as a clinician, you may be able to identify that. Like I'm coming in, I'm just doing, I'm doing some informational counselling. Um, you know, it might be really great to have one student to um, sit alongside with me and just ha have a listen to what sort of you know, what these communication skills look like and how they're different in a palliative scenario. Absolutely. Laura, from your own experiences and the data from your study, do you believe there are prerequisites to work within the palliative care setting? Um, I do. I mean, it's I, I'd have to be careful when I answer this because I don't want to um, sort of pigeonhole what, what mm. my ideal clinician would look like because <laughs> I, I want it to be more broad in that yeah. a clinician from 
with any level of experience should be welcomed into palliative care and can work effectively in palliative care. But in saying that, I think that we do need to have that higher level um, skill set of communication, um, of active listening to be able to, um, you know, adopt that certain level of flexibility like we were talking about before. So, you know, not having that framework and not trying to put everyone into these neat little tick boxes um, which is why whenever I work with students in a palliative setting, you know, if they're drawing up a session plan, I'll say, I want just the broad brushstrokes. <laughs> I do yeah. not want anything specific because yeah. if you do that, you miss the side of the person and you get so absorbed into what your original plan was. Having a certain level of depth literacy, like I, uh, I referred to before as well, is really important. Um, I think what was reflected in the study and interestingly was a lot of these senior clinicians or, you know, clinicians just working for quite a, a while within palliative care, they had their own personal experiences of death as well and a certain level of maturity. Um, so I suppose, you know, new, new grads who yeah. are maybe, you know, in their early 20s, may not have that certain level of life experience or yep. maturity mm-hmm. that might need to coincide with palliative care. So if you've never lost anyone, if you've never experienced illness or deterioration in health, um, whether it be, you know, yourself or a, a close family member or friend, then sometimes there's a bit of that disconnect in that level of mm-hmm. understanding and empathy with your client that's not to say that, you know, if someone who hasn't lost anyone can't work in palliative care, but I just sure. found that they were, there were some real um, skill sets that I found were quite consistent with some, with a lot of the clinicians that were working within palliative care. And so we also, um, with the study, you had sort of the, we had a thematic analysis um, throughout that study of the role of speech pathology in palliative care. Is there a particular area that you would say is most relevant to speech pathology in palliative care or is all the seven themes needs to be a group and you need to sort of swing between the themes in order to be the most effective? Yeah, look, I think um, all all of those seven themes um, in total, so I'll just briefly list them off in cases. Mm, Thank you. They catch up on what yeah. we're talking yeah. about. So those seven um, main themes was the advocacy, identification, assessment, management, support, counselling or consultancy and education. So all of those components formed what we felt from, from the research as what the general role of the speech pathologist was. Now, in a few of those components, they're not all that different from how you might normally operate as a clinician in different care settings. So things like assessment, management, support, um, even sort of educational counselling, um, you know, all, all those things, uh, you know, you, you would find them in different settings. So I don't think that they are unique to palliative care. What I did find were some bigger themes out of those seven was the advocacy, which is what yeah. we've already touched upon because there's still so much misunderstanding of what we can bring to the table. Um, The other thing that I wanted to mention as part of those seven um, main themes was the consultancy approach as well, which is something that perhaps a lot of speech paths who do work, you know, that one-on-one or group um, sort of um, therapy and, and assessment is that 
we don't necessarily have to have the hands-on um, mm. implementation each and every time that we see the client. So it could also be that we don't necessarily need to see the client that day, but we might participate within the case conference and we might um, put forward maybe some some recommendations for the managing team. Or I know in a lot of settings, perhaps there's a limited EFT of the speech pathologist being able to work within the palliative care unit. So maybe just a phone call. Mr. X is having some difficulties with his secretions. Do you have any recommendations? Yep, you can try this, this or this. I can maybe book in later on this week to come in and see him. So feeling a bit more comfortable that you can operate within that way as well, um, which is something that we tend to do quite a bit, considering that a lot of palliative care individuals are choosing or opting to, um, to um, I suppose, receive most of their care at home as well. So you might be doing a hell of a lot more consultancy than what you would be able to do, you know, being able to drive out and, and see each and every individual. That's wonderful. Another point we found really interesting was comparing the practice of a more junior speechy to a speechy with, say, more experience, say, five plus years in this setting. Um, can you elaborate a little more on your experiences with this and what the surveys in the study revealed? Um, so it, it was interesting in that I... I guess I was able to get a bit of a sense about the more junior speech pathologists within the surveys, but I felt when I actually moved to the in-depth interviews, who I was talking to was the more experienced speech. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> they just, just had more to say on that sure. Um But I, I was really, really um, glad that a lot of those junior speeches came out and told us, you know, this is my sort of yeah. what I'm doing because it's, important for us in terms of, you know, provision of additional support and education. I, I guess the main component that I wanted to um, to communicate from this research was that there was, there was a quite a high percentage of clinicians, whether experienced or not, that did feel comfortable in terms of assessing a palliative client um, because the, the mechanism in which you would assess someone didn't differ all too largely from, you know, when you would be seeing someone who's acutely unwell mm. or you know, in, in, in a different ward. Um, so like, a, you know, a dysphagia assessment didn't need to necessarily be um, adjusted, you know, hugely. Where they felt they had zero, and I mean zero percent confidence, was with the management. So they really yeah, right. lost out of their depth and it's almost like they questioned their own dysphagia or even communication knowledge and that they couldn't adopt anything that they knew to a palliative client because they just thought well what, what does this all mean um, yes if, if it's not necessarily rehabilitative um are, are these goals still relevant is is what i'm doing still relevant so um it was it i think it was a, a general sense of them questioning their own clinical knowledge yeah. when it came to the management so that's probably consistent sammy with our model here we it tends to be the grade twos and seniors that see like that service McCulloch House if Sammy and I aren't available and the grade ones um, or our more junior staff might we might do joint reviews and things like that but they probably um, yeah they'd probably take us in do you agree Sammy? I think so and I think that comes from that um, almost like a medico legal mindset if if that makes sense that I think as you grow in the field and you work more in palliative care you're able to flex with your decision making and and put the patient at a as your main center which you should in all care but 
in palliative care, what does this patient want? Is it what they really want to eat? Is it something about they really want to communicate something particular? Or, it, you know, the, the discussions and the conversations around risk feeding and, and what this means for them. So I think sometimes um, with the more junior speeches, they're like, oh, you can't have that because you're aspirating. And that, you know, that's going to cause a chest infection. Then that's going to cause you to have an ammonia. And then, you know, it, and I think that's, they get a bit stuck in that process versus mm. this is about your life. What's going to bring you joy and comfort? What is it that you would like from this session? And I think the more exposure they have to it, the the more they'd be able to make those decisions. Sort of look beyond the goals of care. Yeah. Yeah. Because also too, I think we find when we see like, you know, goals of care C here is like a supportive palliative approach mm. and then goals of care D means they're terminal and, and we get a very quick tap out at goals of care D doesn't mean, whereas, you know, that's the time we could be doing the mouth care, the advocating for the family, the, the social communication side for the patient themselves um, versus seeing this and then we're out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much that actually can be done. And I think it it's really about that creativity as well. Like mm. how can we continue to, you know, foster and facilitate quality of life really at that terminal phase as well. Um, mm. Like, for example, you know, doing doing flavour swabs just to, you know, yes. help a bit of that sense. You know, I, I still remember doing, you know, some beer-flavoured swabs. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> who couldn't be having, um, you know, oral intake any longer. But that was enough to, to satisfy that sort of mm. need. And having setting up a table where the family could all share a beer with him at the same time. Yeah. So really trying to attribute that social aspect as well and, you know, being able to, for him to be a part of something that he felt was so important to him. So oh, that's wonderful. It's, yes. it's, it's a real, it, it, it's a real shame, isn't it? Like if we do get locked out at that very end stage as well, but again, it, it utilizes that quick thinking, that um, creativity, that flexibility in terms of your management as well, which I guess if you are a younger, more more junior clinician, um, you perhaps just don't have that experience to to play around mm. with those ideas, and you still get quite fixated in the, you know, what if they aspirate? What if they choke? Yes. Whose fault is it? How do I document this? Who's you know who do I have to go to to get this approval? This and that, and um, yeah, so still largely need that guidance on that front. We did want to have a, um, a discussion with you about, I, in the research paper, we had that uh, speech pathologists felt that doctors overrided a lot of their recommendations. So we would go in, we'd do the assessment, we'd recommend things, and sometimes, yes, they're followed. Otherwise, the next day or two, they're not followed or they're completely overwritten. Uh, we've written, you know, they're on a modified diet and the doctor said, eat and drink as they please. Yeah. Can you... Can you talk more to that? That I think that the doctors may have had the best of intentions to say if they are palliative and for quality of life reasons, let them eat mm. and drink as they please. But I guess this is where um, the medical team are perhaps missing that value of speech pathology in that, um, like, for example, I've, I've got a client on my caseload at the moment who um, I'm supporting at home within the, within the palliative care service and he he should be recommended for a moderately thick and pureed diet. Yet we've brought him to approximately about a, a soft and bite size so that he can have, you know, quite a bit mm. more. 
if he were to have more than that, he actually fatigues so much when he's trying to chew those harder textures and he can't even get through his meals. Then he starts to cough and choke to the point where he's feeling a bit of pain and he's just feeling general discomfort. So in in that particular case, telling him eat and drink as you will, and mind you, he has a bit of a a cognitive overlay in that he would just grab whatever and shove whatever in his mouth without much knowledge of what that might do to him. If we had done that, then we're actually not facilitating optimal comfort for him. Mm. So there's that fine balance where it's, I want you to have more options. And, you know, he's got a particular inkling for KFC. Um, You know, (laughs) some things become really important at end of life. Um, KFC is one of them. So, um, you know, he really wanted something like that. So I'd work with the the family to say, okay, this is how we can make it a little bit of a soft and bite size or here we can moisten it up a little bit or use a potato and gravy or something like that. Again, if they were given no rules, you know, just free range, it may not be conducive to optimal quality of life or Mm. comfort feeding. So um, I guess my point there is that, circling back that doctors do have the best of intentions but it may not be the best outcome for the client which is where the speech pathology expertise can actually help to work out where that you know that happy medium is for that client this is how I can make it the most comfortable for you yeah I think that's that's where you've cut where you've said before Lindsay about um you know our advocacy and our education of our role so that if if we had a role that was defined or um, further educated to the team of palliative care, then they would see that that would be an important tool to be able to strategize, modify versus completely have, you know, eat what you want or drink what you want because you're dying. Um, and if they knew that that was a place that we had a role in, that might, um, with the education, that might make us more part of the team. Yes. Agree. I think, it, look, it has to be just a lack of education of the breadth of the role of speech pathologists. Uh, I, and unfortunately, um, I hate to be critical of the speech pathology profession, but you start out with the word speech. <laughs> so, see, that in itself is a limiting factor when other people are viewing um, the speech pathology profession. So, and that's, and so the, it, it's necessary to educate the population beyond that very specific term of speech so yeah and that just requires education um which i think is one of the things we'll probably end up discussing a bit later what are the you know take-home points from our experience too i think sammy in mcculloch house we um we've got quite a good profile there but we do find that when you know from an education perspective profile perspective um and being involved with the patient care if we aren't in there for say a couple of weeks the referrals drop off so it is around that visibility having the physical presence on yes. the ward yeah. um you know attending the mdts and you know investing in that in that mdt is so important um giving back um just wondered during your interviews with the speech pathologists um was there a consensus of, of a difference between risk feeding and comfort feeding that big question <laughs> and were they used interchangeably comes up a lot here (laughs) yeah um i would say that the majority of of the participants actually did refer to it as comfort feeding um, when when they're working within palliative care but i guess and and i this is probably an um an oversight on my behalf in that i should have actually made mention that i found that that term was more interchangeably used with 
more inexperienced speech paths who perhaps were still in that medico-legal mind frame of referring Mm. to, oh, yeah, they were eating and drinking at risk and and I helped them do this. And then, um, you know, I, I would clarify with, so do you mean at this point were you offering comfort feeding um, recommendations? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was doing. So it's it, it was kind of still, you know, they, they understood what they were wanting to do, but there's still that label of that risk feeding, which I think is a bit, it's so limiting in palliative care as well because it just adds that additional barrier for clients to, you know, explore their full quality of life, you know, Absolutely. goals. Yeah. And even say the patients that have been active in our acute setting that then transition, they might be risk feeding here and goals of care C and then transition to a goals of care D and we're still involved. They transition to comfort feeding. It's it's a real grey area sometimes. Um, You know, they've been risk fed on this, but then they actually might comfort feed on something else. So yeah, it's, 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 (laughs) it's an interesting process. Um, Lots of education required at times as well. Absolutely. And it's hard because there's nothing that's been specifically defined in the literature mm. as well. I mean, the the new, like I said, the new risk feeding guidelines are one good step, but we need to go further as to this is what it means within palliative care settings. Yes. Um, and this is what comfort feeding means. And this is how it's differentiated. So I, I guess I don't, I don't blame any clinicians who might mm. use that term interchangeably because there's no clear guidance in, in the evidence or literature help guide them otherwise. Just wanted to touch on too, um, I know in the study you looked at whether um, the use of instrumental assessments and and where they lie in this, in this uh, cohort of people. Can you elaborate on the results of uh, the instrumental studies, fees versus video fluoros? Yeah, so this was um, an interesting topic mm. that I hadn't even planned um, or anticipated would actually come up. <laughs> to be um, so this was something that had incidentally emerged in the coding process. There wasn't a targeted question around it, to be honest. Um, but what I found was that um, there was it was almost like a divide here between whether to even conduct an instrumental or not and where, what place it had within palliative care setting. Interesting. Yeah. So there were, and, and I'll be interested to hear your um, your uh, perspective on this too because I feel every single person I talk about can argue this as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess if, if I'm just stating what the, what the overall debate was mm. is that there was a certain amount of clinicians that would say, um, you know, instrumental assessments have no place within palliative care settings because if you were to, to conduct an instrumental, it might have been to assess the efficacy of um, or safety of certain diet or fluid textures or um, dysphagia rehab um, techniques. If they said, if that's not likely to change the outcome or if we're comfort feeding, then what would be the purpose of actually conducting such an instrumental assessment? Whereas um, there is another side of that debate where um, a clinician might say it would be good to see what that line is in terms of level of safety and how we can help facilitate that comfort feeding within, you know, um, reasonable um, guidelines. Um, The other, uh, I suppose, interesting point there as well was that a lot of those clinicians would actually use the footage of a video fluoroscopy or even a fees to help educate the client in terms of discussing 
what was happening to their swallow and why there was a deterioration or why why we are moving to maybe a bit more conservative measures or needing to implement some more safe swallow strategies. Um, so I guess in in my opinion, I when I listened to both sides, I thought they both had very valid reasons. And then I guess the difference between whether to do a video thoroscopy or fees. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That was less of a divide, I would say, yeah. because more often than not, if you have someone who is acutely unwell or palliative, they may not be able to withstand um, a video fluoroscopy and the fees might be more accessible to them if they were bed bound, for example. Yeah. But then saying that, that's also can be incredibly invasive uh, yeah. and may not be something that they would want to participate in as well. So. From your interviews, can you discuss the participants' responses to the tertiary training exposure to palliative care settings? So that sort of popped up in terms of them potentially not being exposed to it in their tertiary education and the impact yeah. of that and the flow on effect. Uh, I, I think, you know, again, because I was talking to majority um, experienced clinicians, so these are clinicians who probably graduated more than 10 plus years ago, mm. um, palliative care was not a common um, topic that was discussed um, and, and and it was still, like I previously mentioned, that largely rehabilitative approach um, to care. So a lot found that, you know, for them to find their way into palliative care, it was normally by, um, you know, guidance from another senior clinician and then passing down that knowledge, I guess, is, is like almost like a form of legacy for them to start working in there. But they, mm-hmm. they claimed that, you know, they never really received that from tertiary um from their tertiary degree. That has changed um, recently though. Um, and I can say that as part of the study findings, as well as you know, my own experience working um, within um, the universities, is that you know, we're starting to be able to implement some more palliative care. So, you know, there's now at least you know two hours that are dedicated to palliative care. It's small, um, it's really a brief overview, but at least it's some first level of exposure so um, ideally um, the recommendation is that we really have to ramp up this um, Mm. you know uh, education in palliative care and ideally I want to see that in every area of practice because every client has the possibility to die so I'm going to work in disability I'm going to work in community rehab guess what you're going to find some palliative clients there or like you've mentioned with your students, you're going to have some clients that you hadn't even expected mm. to pass mm. may have, you know, an, an acute medical event or it just may take a turn for the worse or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and then they too become palliative. So we need to prepare all students in mm. every area of care. And as I, I mean, I, I talk about adult because I'm, I'm an adult clinician, but even paediatric, which is you know, a really sensitive area of practice where not a lot of people actually want to talk about the idea of palliation, um, you know, for that population. Mm. But that's still a very present reality. So um, mm. students need to be aware of that, even if they're saying, oh, you know what, I'm going to work in, in paediatrics just to avoid palliative care. Well, I, I hope you don't have to, but you might cross mm. a path where you will see a palliative um, paediatric client as well. Mm. Lindsay, why do you think they don't have a palliative or like a death and dying approach across all health sciences and uni? Well, I think as I was mentioning earlier on that there is a fear of talking about death and mortality and that um, uh, speech pathologists and the same as other allied health professions have to face their own mortality in order to 
really cope with um, other people's mortality. So that's one reason. I think also that the death literacy literature um, is huge now. It's expansive. Uh, you know, since the days of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, we have progressed, um, uh, you know, a long way down the track in terms of all the various types of models of death, um, bereavement and grieving. And so there's a lot in for a profession to now, for all the professions to now have to catch up on. Um, and so that's that's another reason is just trying to become more aware of the literature is now a demanding job. Um, and so, and that's one of the aspects I think in general too that speech pathologists do need to keep on top of the literacy side of it because it doesn't take much um, to get behind. I was just going to ask you, do you think now with, the, you know, when you were speaking about the models of death, do you think now with voluntary assisted dying being a new form of palliation or palliative management patient choice that um, things may change a little bit more from an education university perspective that they may see this as a more um, open area to discuss? One would think so, but I think at the moment we're caught by two frames of reference. The first frame of reference is the old way of thinking, and that is, as Laura was hinting at, it's rehabilitation-focused, etc. Mm. And we, we unfortunately we've still got that cloud of that frame of reference cloud over us that that's um, the way uh, that the world operates is its rehabilitation and and it's also part of that positive psychology um, is to reinforce you know aim to get better and give the patient as much positive information so those sort of two factors together uh, is one reason for holding it back the other factor actually is that over the last few years because of COVID-19 ironically is that we should be addressing death um literacy, et cetera, a lot more. But in fact, um, we haven't. The universities uh, have tended to go backwards in my view and actually haven't uh, really sought earnestly to incorporate um, death, dying and grief as part of the studies. Again, as I said, you can take it as an elective, but it really should be a mandatory component Mm. for Mm. all health professionals um, to to understand uh, that death literacy, um, not only to help their clients, but also to help themselves cope with it. And I think that's one of the, the biggest issues I, I hear from speech pathologists at the moment who are contacting me by email as part of the palliative care special interest group is that they want to meet more often because the speech pathologists who are involved in palliative care are quite often exhausted mm. um, and they don't have the time to consult with their with um, colleagues working in the palliative care field. And so those two combinations um, together is, is very, very draining. And and that's also reflects on the universities as well. I don't think universities have actually caught up with the fact of how demanding the palliative care role is emotionally and physically, etc. Yeah. I think there's a perception that uh, because it's end of life, that somehow there's less to do, that it's, um, it, it's not as demanding as the other areas. And I'm sorry, but that is just completely false. Um, but that is unfortunately that's being reiterated in our universities by not prioritizing it because it's end of life and so well no we've got to focus more on the rehabilitation get people going let's be positive let's not inject any negativity etc whatever you do don't mention the possibility of death (laughs) (laughs) and and so those two frame you know the previous framework that has been going on for a number of years and now this more um, contemporary framework of of another form of denial um, the two of them together are actually inhibiting um, the universities from actually engaging more deeply about death, dying, etc. Mm. 
Yes. So, and consequently, palliative care suffers as a result of it. Yes. So, uh, Lindsay and Laura, what are the take-home messages for our listeners today? Well, if I give mine, and Laura will have hers. Sure thing. Conflict. So, there's three three take-home messages that I think are, are really important. And the first is that um, speech pathologists need to be included in palliative care. I think that's a given. But two ways to make sure that happens. One is that uh, SLPs need to collaborate more. They need to work together. And and what I like to call peer group consultation, that is that uh, um, SLPs working in palliative care across, across institutionally need to consult more together. I don't think that's happening enough and it needs to take place, just specifically for SLPs. I know Palliative Care Australia, Palliative Care Victoria, uh, you know, offer these services broadly, but I think there needs to be a a, um, peer group, um, a speech language pathology peer group consultation um, strategy in place. Um, The second second, um, point is that I think speech pathologists need to take home the message that I would have the confidence of their role in palliative care. Speech pathologists um, are clearly holistic at the biological level, the psychological level, the social level and the spiritual. There's no question about that. And I think speech pathologists need to have that sense of confidence. Yes, we are truly a holistic profession. Mm-hmm. And with that confidence, they should be able to move forward. Without that confidence, I think SLPs will always be stumbling around you know, do we have a role here? Do we not have a role here? What is our biological, physical mm. uh, input exactly? You know, should we or shouldn't we? What is our um, psychological input? Can we make a con- What is our social input? What is our spiritual input? And uh, as a profession, the door is open for you to be um, fully holistic and, be, and to be proud of that, more so, I would argue, than some other professions that are actually limited in what they um, can do. And the third thing is, as we've already mentioned, is that SLPs need to be more um, literacy focused. They need to keep up with the power care literature um, and also the death literacy. Now, we're trying to do that through the speech pathology special interest group. Um, we're trying to keep the research up there um, and we're trying to produce um, uh, uh, materials that uh, SLPs and palliative care can use. But it takes a lot of work. And it's that working together again, that collaboration, which was the first point I mentioned, that that also helps the other um, the other factors as well for SLPs to be um, advanced within palliative care. Mm. So they're the three things that I would offer. What have you got, Laura? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, luckily you've actually taken a few things off my list. So Good, um, right. <laughs> agree with everything that you've said. Um, I guess um, just to just just for those maybe even thinking about wanting to work in palliative care or trying to. Mm make their way through um, what palliative care is just to be aware of that that you know palliative care has that longer trajectory rather than just that active phase of dying I always think that that's a really big yes. message um, for our listeners hopefully um, and just being aware as well that there is a very real and utilized concept that we refer to as um, palliative rehabilitation so even if we're not necessarily um, you know maintaining uh, or, you know, increasing function to the point where Mm. perhaps we can discharge this person, it might be maintaining um, function as best as we can and having quality of life focused goals for the client and, you know, being able to stabilise or help mitigate any, um, you know, uncomfortable sort of signs and symptoms that might be associated with their illness um, within obviously the realms of, of, how we uh, treat our clients in swallowing and communication. 
Um, so being aware of that, if you're not aware of palliative rehabilitation, I advise to look up that research and that literature. That's um, There's quite a lot that's around there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just to be aware of um, that, you know, we are creating more research as, as we're going along. So just like Lindsay said, to make mm-hmm. sure that you keep up with your literature as well. So I did just recently put out a paper of learning at end of life. So it's helping to... Um, prepare speech language pathology graduates to work in palliative care and I'll have some more. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so I'm actually working with some wonderful colleagues at Melbourne Uni. So I've got Dr Megan Keege and Hayley Deloro who are very experienced clinicians as well as clinical educators and Dr Gemma Skeet um, who has experience in clinical education as well from Deakin. And at the end of the year we're supposed to, we're wanting to have um, some more results on how we can actually facilitate these clinical placements in palliative care and how we can help guide cl- um, clinicians within their role as a CE to help foster that that learning and development in these sensitive um, care settings. So there's some really wonderful work, not just mine, um, which yeah. I kind of discuss, but you know, I know that, you know, Lily Krakow is, you know, making quite a big lead in paediatric palliative care. And, um, you know, there are so many other colleagues that are around Australia. And then again, overseas, I was lucky enough to um, collaborate with um, Professor Robin Pollins, who I would say is the queen of um, palliative care in speech pathology. And we wrote a letter to the editor regarding covid and um, ha- what our role would be at end of life with a COVID-positive patient as well. Um, so there's so much that's happening, so much that's emerging. So, um, yeah, keep yourself updated with that research because there's lots of exciting things that are happening. It might be worthwhile to make to get really familiar um, and comfortable with person-centred care frameworks, which mm. is what largely palliative care yeah. is based around. Yeah. So if you're feeling a little bit lost in terms of, how do I operate? How do I make sure I'm being person-centered? How do I make sure I'm being holistic in my care? Have a look at those frameworks and, and particularly have a look at the facilitators and barriers to those frameworks as well. And have open discussions with your healthcare settings as to, you know, I've noticed that, you know, we we don't necessarily have the time to spend with our palliative clients. Is there something that we can do to increase that, you know, that EFT with um with these particular clients just to help spend more time with them. Like, you're right. I, I spend double the amount of time with my palliative clients than I would with someone who's coming in yeah. for, you know, dysarthria therapy. Mm. Um, they It just takes so much more time. Mm. And for you to be holistic mm. and person-centred, you need to offer them that time and space to, you know, really make sure that we're contributing to their quality of life goals. Mm. Thank you so much to everyone and all our listeners as well. We'll be back for another Speak Up episode next Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.